You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Joy Damiani. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. On this episode, our guest is Marty Otanias, the cultural anthropologist and filmmaker. There's a value of listening to people and, and listening deeply to make sure that we understand each other. And then, of course, the next steps are figuring out, you know, what's the remedy? What are the solutions to some of the problems that, that people face? We're really, really excited to share that whole conversation with you. But first, if you've been enjoying what you've been hearing on the podcast for the now more than a year that we've been doing it, we are very excited that you're listening, first of all. Thanks so much for being here. And um, and if you want to show us some additional love, other than just lending us your ears, then, then feel free to leave us a five-star review, review iTunes, um, or write us a review if you've got a minute, you know, take a break from whatever other internet activities you were doing and, you know, just, just say hi, because we always are happy to hear from you. And we do apologize for a couple, couple of audio glitches on this episode. We, uh, I think, had some bugs actively messing in the matrix is what happened. So, thanks for bearing with us, and we'll figure it out sooner or later. And now, without further ado, to get things started, the rest of the theme song that we never play for you, it's a song of mine called In a Major Key. I have got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. When I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. So I looked back to a time before when people spoke out even more. And I found one commonality. You see, they sang it in a major key. A minor key won't work if you want to tell. Folks that they're jerks You want your audience to agree You gotta sing it in a major key Well, it worked for Bob and Joan and Pete When they raged against the world's elite They used their tune so bright and sweet To fight against the machine the people lapped up every word they sang along like little birds cause how can anyone be wrong when their song is in a major key a minor key won't do if you want to share your point of view you want the people to hear your stance a major key will be your only chance and now i see it very clear how to talk to people so they can hear using do re mi so fa and ti they will see exactly what i mean and my message might not be profound but all that really matters is I can say any goddamn thing I please If I sing it in a major key If I sing it in a major key
Marty Otanez is a California-born cultural anthropologist and filmmaker. He is an associate professor in the anthropology department at the University of Colorado, Denver. His research and creative work focus on digital storytelling to increase health equities, cannabis workers, and the strategies workers deploy to stay healthy, as well as corporate accountability and tobacco industry exploitative practices at the farm level in Malawi and other tobacco-growing developing countries. So we'll just start off with a question we like to ask all of our guests first off the bat. Um, how is your apocalypse going? Uh, it's been pleasant. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I really love these uh, projects and excited to talk with you guys. So I've been very lucky as a professor, you know, working at home has been okay. Isolation, you know, deal with that by just getting outside, going for walks. So I do um, have been doing a lot of walks, riding my bike. And just hanging out with my family. I got two boys. So it's been going well. Uh, you're just managing all the crazy feelings and um, looking at all the crazy challenges going on in our world and how we can be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Yeah, totally. I feel that for sure. So, well, hopefully we'll be talking mm-hmm. about some of your solutioning that you do today. So, Solutioning is one of my favorite verbs. <laughs> so, yay, solutioning. Gosh, there's so much I could ask you about because you just you do so many different projects and you know you have so much amazing stuff that you've done um but maybe I'll just kind of start with sort of your approach to teaching because you incorporate digital storytelling a lot and I was really interested in hearing kind of how you got interested in that and maybe how you see it as relating to kind of critical practices in teaching Great. Yeah. Thanks for the question. So I originally started out, you know, doing my dissertation in the early, uh, late 90s, early 2000s as a traditional text document. Um, this was work uh, in the anthropology related to tobacco farm workers and child labor in Malawi. And I realized I had such great access with my field work. So I just started filming things. And so I created a documentary film called Tengata, which is uh, a language, uh, the Chewa word for forced labor. And that film made me realize uh, the value of visual imagery to tell a story and disseminate knowledge. And I actually finished the film before I did the dissertation. Um, and so it allowed me to just uh, situate my work in non-academic audiences and get feedback from different uh, people in different organizations. And then over time, I realized it's nice to do you know investigative anthropology and documentary filmmaking, but it's also really fun to um, you know, refashion image making and just create space for people to create their own stories. And so through uh, a colleague and a friend from the Center for Digital Storytelling out of Berkeley, now called Story Center or storycenter.org, I learned about this model called digital storytelling. And essentially it's just a process of creating a safe space for people in a workshop workshop format to create uh, first-person narratives with images, uh, narration, and then background music. And then these short videos, which are typically two to three minutes long, tend to be really effective at uh, relaying information, but also building camaraderie with community members and students. And so I got into digital storytelling right when I came to CU Denver in 2008. And I did two things simultaneously, which you kind of mentioned in your question, integrate it into classrooms, but also integrate it in the uh, collaborative uh, research and creative work I do in the in communities. So in the classroom, 
I mean, my main point is that in the university setting, there's a imbalance between the visual text and written text. Mm -hmm. And so my job, I thought, in the university and in my classes was as an anthropologist, if we're going to first tell stories about other people, we got to first tell our own stories. And then I realized with my students in anthropology and social sciences generally, you know, taking out written assignments or making them optional and then training students how to uh, video edit, how to write their stories or, or respond to a story prompt. And then um, basically understand the process of community building or building a community of practice where students and the instructor learn from each other by sharing narratives about particular issues that we care about. And so I found over time, it's a great way to repurpose the classroom as a workshop and not just be lecturing students because we all know today in 2021, even myself, multitasking, whether you're in the class or um, you know, working at home, it's hard for people to pay attention. And so the storytelling and the production process of creating digital stories is just really a great activity to get students to take possession of material, but also to uh, reveal uh, layers of themselves and, and how it relates to different um, concepts and theories in anthropology. And, and so I've been very fortunate to probably up to this point, create about 500 digital stories with students. So they're student produced, but I just help foster the the narration, you know, create the stories and develop them with the students and then help them record it and build the images themselves. And then uh, in the last couple of years, uh, ensuring a pipeline from the classroom to publication. So working with undergrads and grad students where they make a digital story for an assignment and then helping them polish it and get it published uh, in an academic journal. And so that's been really exciting and helped me rethink who I am in terms of like, for me to create a setting, I also have to tell stories about myself to get people mm-hmm. to feel comfortable. And so that's been really fun. So, yeah, I also really like this approach because it almost kind of challenges the sort of, I think, kind of outdated notions of authority and expertise in academia in a lot of ways. Um, and I, it seems like from reading that, um, that 2018 piece from the book that you sent, that that's been kind of a challenge with you know, other academics and seeing this work as actually being, you know, contributing to the body of knowledge. So I'm curious if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, excellent. No, great point. So so I think, let me start with students, because even students come wired to just like, give me the quiz, give me the midterm, give me the paper. And, and so getting them to recognize uh, a short um, video that's autobiographical that is scholarly and and recognizing that anchoring the process into literature, into concepts, and just getting people to be transparent and share a part of themselves in this video format, it's it's just part of the academic endeavor. And it's just as important as doing a midterm, taking a quiz or doing a final paper. And so in the classroom, I think what's been most exciting is to get students to recognize that there's a breadth of activities that you can do, which are considered scholarly. And at least in this small field of digital storytelling, students tend to share this tangible item with family and friends and they get a a positive response. Whereas they don't necessarily run home and share their final papers, you know, with family and friends and they don't get the kind of reaction they do with these videos. Now among colleagues, I mean, the reality is you know, the universities, excuse me, universities are entrapped by this notion that scholarly material is traditional text in the written format. And I just don't subscribe to that. 
But at the same time, I recognize that in a way I'm doing two jobs. I do the creative stuff and, and, and get videos out there and do a lot of creative work, but I also publish traditional documents, you know, traditional papers, chapters, uh, articles that analyze the narratives themselves, the visual imagery. And so my colleagues are, are very supportive in my departments. I've had no problems. It's been relatively easy for me to get funding. So that's always nice, but there's still a lot of work we do to make space for other people who may be more junior that feel that they can only get recognition and promotion based on traditional scholarly written text. And for me, that's a huge problem. And I try to devote my time to help people see that you can do this creative work and really enjoy it uh, and not like make it feel like get, you're getting a root canal when you get these papers mm-hmm. pushed out every, you know, every year or so. Yeah. It's the whole publisher parish model. <laughs> So kind of interrogating that too, very valuable, I think. So I really appreciate that that uh, thought train and it it kind of stopped me at the place where I, of thinking about access and how um, the way that digital storytelling um, creates access is kind of antithetical to this sort of um, elitist, world of academic publishing um, and in general. And I wonder if you could, you know, speak to some of the impact that you've noticed from like creating a greater access to academic analysis and thinking in this way. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I I think to answer this, um, it might be good to move from teaching Uh, Because I do integrate teaching in all the work I do, whether it's research or service. But um, with the digital storytelling process, I've been able to um, transplant it and apply it outside the university in community projects where I'm doing research and creative work and uh, community members, (coughs) excuse me, uh, community members uh, faced with particular challenges, whether it's gentrification or, you know, racism or um, unsafe working conditions in the cannabis workplace, um, you know, using video, using uh, storytelling as a way to build trust and relationships with community members. But then also when projects are finished, typically academic people turn around and say, here's the chapter, here's the article, here's the book. Thank you for your input and your contribution. Whereas this actually, the process of digital storytelling and, and video making it allows community members to actually have something tangible that they like. And that could be a video that they created in a workshop format with me and um, workshop facilitators. And so I try to make sure when I'm developing relationships with community members, that when we engage in this process of digital storytelling, I want to make sure that they get something out of it that's useful for them. And typically that's these innovative stories that are short that can be put on websites or just used in presentation to recruit people or even um, when people in the community have funding and they have to report back, sometimes these videos are great when you talk about evaluation of projects. So this just adds to the resources for people um, when they have to report back to funders. Because uh, unfortunately, people in the community with the money that they get, half of their time is spent doing administrative work, trying to you know fulfill the requirements of the funders. So the videos are just a nice addition to that. So some of the impact has been uh, increasing the visibility of myself in, in the university in communities to do collaborative ethnographic um, research and creative work. 
Awesome. Um, I think one of the great examples of that is the Naloxone Champions Project. Um, that looks like a really great way to also kind of show how that digital storytelling not only supports harm reduction initiatives, maybe influences public policy. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that project and yeah, what some of the results you've seen from that. Uh, maybe also kind of just explaining what it is too for folks that may not be familiar. Yeah, so through, um, through funds from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, in uh, the spring this year, 2021, I received funding for a project, an evaluation project called Naloxone Champions. Basically, it was a workshop model kind of project where the focus was the creation of digital stories with people who use drugs to help destigmatize drug use and to also create knowledge about the importance of having naloxone and Narcan, which is medicine to reverse overdoses, more available among community members. So the focus was digital storytelling. Unfortunately, the model that I applied had to be transformed because it was really, really difficult to recruit people. I was hoping to recruit 50 people that would sit into a, in a workshop that's 24 hours spread over a couple of days. And so each person was going to get $250 to sit in a workshop spread over three days for 24 hours, but recruitment was really, really difficult. And so what we did is we revisited the model and then we found by making a hybrid workshop, more of a short form kind of workshop that involved conversations with individuals at syringe exchange centers. So these syringe exchange centers throughout Colorado, there's several of them. These are places where drug users go to get Narcan and Naloxone and clean syringes. We would set up a table nearby and have snacks and chips and a big um, poster and basically ask people after they, got, after they got their supplies if they would be interested to share a story about their um, uh, overdose. And of course, we made a huge assumption that people had experienced overdose and pretty much nine times out of 10, most of these individuals have experienced the overdose. And so what happened when we changed the model from the 24-hour format to a truncated kind of workshop that was more one-on-one, -on -one, uh, we got 76 participants. And the videos are up on the website called naloxonechampions.org. And they range from different themes uh, to the use of Narcan to reverse an overdose and what happens to um, the, the things that happen when Narcan's not available. Like there's these myths that you can uh, shake someone out of an overdose by putting them in cold water. Um, there's stories of people uh, putting ice cubes in someone's bottom or in a vagina as a way to, to, to get them to wake up. So, so some of the videos actually talked about these things, but our goal was to just provide a safe space for people to tell their stories and to get their voices heard, because in general, this population of drug users are typically the targets of projects, and they don't necessarily get to talk. And, mm -hmm. and so the goal was to just allow them to speak. And so we um, had to do a little bit of, of editing to the videos, because sometimes there was incorrect information about uh, overdose uh, reversal steps. And so for some of the videos, we just had to make uh, sure on the screen that you know, if someone said, oh, wait 10 minutes until you do the second dose of Narcan, that was actually incorrect, even though their story, maybe they remember that way. So yeah. we just had to fix a couple of videos 
but it's been for me transforming talking to all these people and in a short period of time getting them to um, open up and share this really dark time in their lives uh, for the greater good of destigmatizing drug users and then also to get people to recognize the value of easily accessible Narcan and Naloxone for community members. That's awesome. That's fantastic work. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I think that is, it's a really, really under, um, underheard community. So first of all, thank you for doing that work. And um, also as somebody who's, you know, had a lot of experience with, you know, the stigmatization of, you know, any kind of drug use, um, you know, as far as it being an excuse to sort of harm people or try to control them or force them into reforming their behavior um, without addressing, you know, the, the core issues at the root of like use and overdose and all of these, um, all of these negative impacts that are widely widely known about using, um, I think it's just it's good to have have a, a non-stigmatized, humanizing approach. And um, so, thank you for doing that. And um, but I'm I'm sort of wondering how um, how you ended up there because I know you've done a, a lot of. Um, you know, I know Sarah had mentioned initially about a lot of your work in the cannabis realm, and I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about some of the connections between the underavailability of stories like this and how it relates across the um, across the spectrum of drug use. Yeah, again, I appreciate the question. So, if I understand it right, you're asking me about, you know, we have a context where there's um, lots of stories that need to be told, but they're not getting told. Um, and then also sort of what are the connections between all these different things that I'm doing that involve digital storytelling? Um, so, yeah. so, okay. So the, um, you know, the, in general, if you look at our system, whether it's the corporate capitalism or, you know, racial, racialized capitalism, you know, our existing system is set up so that, you know, there's the largest pool of people that don't have a platform to uh, to talk, to share their stories. Of course, you can argue with social media, you know, Instagram at our fingertips, that there's platforms everywhere, but there's still many people who are disconnected and disenfranchised. And, and so I, I think, um, you know, there's a opportunity here to build social connections with people, you know, people who are willing and interested to share their story, but are not finding many people willing or ready to listen. And I think part of that is because, you know, when it comes to this specific population of drug users, I think there's many of us that are entrapped by stigma and stereotypes that we don't know what to do. We don't know um, uh, what we can do to support people or what we can do just to be there to listen and and so i'm finding individuals who are in the trenches like in the harm reduction field and the you know uh, uh outreach field working with this these populations on a daily basis they're doing incredible work you know they're helping people dealing with short-term issues of just having clean needles and getting uh the the medicine to reverse the the overdoses 
But I think since um, this stigma is so severe, the majority of the people who suffer from overdoses, they refuse or are reluctant to come out and talk mm -hmm. about this problem because they maybe perceive that they have more to lose. So individuals who are drug users and mostly unhoused or live in, uh, you know, economic insecurity, you know, they, in a, in a way, were happy to show their share their story because they would instantly get a $50 gift card. So it was no problem. But the actual project in the Luxon Champions was meant to, to recruit people from all walks of life. It's just people from, uh, you know, middle class, upper middle class, different socioeconomic areas were reluctant to participate. And it could be either lack of time, uh, the craziness of the pandemic, or what I believe this, this um, protection, this self-protection that they want to do and not talk about this because of the stereotype and prejudice against them, or they perceive they have too much to lose. Um, but I think now there's a major change happening in our culture where people are you know, ready to listen and share stories and then connect with people. And I think the most blatant kind of an explicit um, progress is like, if you look at these TED Talks, you know, these TED Talks are these very formalized things where people give speeches and it's, in a way they're just sharing stories, but those have really taken off in a way you could say they've been corporatized and institutionalized and, and not really giving ordinary people a chance to talk, but at least that's a positive sign where there's a value of listening to people and, and listening deeply to make sure that we understand each other. And then of course the next steps are figuring out, you know, what's the remedy? What are the solutions to some of the problems that, that people face? At least in my small field of harm reduction that I'm getting into with drug users, the solution is, overdose prevention sites, so legal sites where people can come and consume heroin um, and do it safely without um, any health hazards, health hazards, that's one. And then also um, in Canada and elsewhere in Europe, having a safe supply, a legal supply of heroin that's free from fentanyl. Unfortunately, the overdose crisis is being exasperated because of illicit fentanyl, which is um, contributing to deaths Due to overdoses. So at least in that area, these are a couple of remedies that I think I'm driving toward with the work that I'm doing and the people I've been able to talk to. And all of these things are interconnected because I just realized over time, being the lone anthropologist or the lone social scientist, to me, it's not very fulfilling. And so the way I've been able to connect to people in a collaborative manner is through story sharing and then visual representation. And so that's been, for me, um, how all these pieces are tied together, identifying issues that are important to me, uh, finding out who the key players are, identifying funding sources, obtaining the funding, and then working collaboratively and constantly checking in with each other to ensure things are being done in a dignified way and that we're not re-stigmatizing people or representing people inaccurately uh, against their wishes. But yeah, I can kind of see some links with at least the destigmatization de piece with like what Ingrid Walker does and talking about, you know, trying to talk about, I mean, obviously you're highlighting a specific community, but also her work with non, you know, quote unquote, non-problematic drug use or like, you know, just trying to get people to tell their stories and her telling her story on her TED talk, you know, about using meth and things like that, I think kind of goes a long way for maybe that population that wouldn't feel comfortable sharing their naloxone story and seeing like, yeah, you can share your story, even if you're not what society thinks 
you know, a drug user looks like. And maybe we should actually realize that that is what a drug user looks like if more people would share those stories. But, um, yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned her because I was introduced to her last year through the you know psychedelic symposium and I'm beginning to get familiar with her work. I didn't know she had a TED talk. So now I'm going to check yeah. it out. So I appreciate yeah. you mentioning that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll send it to, to you. It's really good. So <laughs> awesome. Um, so yeah, another thing you've done a lot of work on that I was interested in talking about with you was um, kind of cannabis labor issues. And I think you've approached this from a few different angles. Angles. So maybe we'll just start generally with kind of situating your work um, in the cannabis industry around labor, because I feel like people are so stoked on the cannabis industry that they don't see the underbelly of it and they don't want to talk about some of the realities of like this is still in a capitalist system where you're depending on workers you're probably not paying them you're probably not compensating them for injuries on the job things like that so yeah maybe just start generally with like a broad overview of your work and we can get a little more specific so most of my work for the first 20 years looked at the tobacco industry in yeah. central africa and globally and um, I still continue to do that work. I'm looking at labor trafficking in Malawi's um, tobacco growing sector, but it's getting harder and harder to travel there. And then also the pandemic kind of put things on the back burner. And so around 2014, obviously this is before the pandemic, but during some times where it's harder to get funding and just challenging for me, I realized with cannabis being legalized in Colorado, it's like in my backyard, you know, this this area that's under-researched. And, and so unlike my goal in tobacco, you know, my goal in tobacco was to crush tobacco companies because they're harming people at the farm level through exploitative practices. In the cannabis sector, my goal is to understand it and make sure more people benefit from the cannabis sector. And so what I did is I just grafted the model that I created to critique and analyze tobacco at the production and supply level and apply that in Denver's, uh, Colorado's cannabis sector. So what I mean by that, I was basically interested in two different kinds of issue and I'm still doing th this work. The first is what are the experiences of workers like in the cannabis sector? And of course, this is not specific to cannabis because you can ask any worker about their job and they're gonna, they're gonna vent. You know, they're gonna tell you what they like and dislike and um, it gets a little bit uh, challenging when you bring up issues of unions and labor organizations because some people are very split about that. But we all agree that we would like to be better paid. We'd like to have better sexual harassment policies. We'd like to ensure that when we go to work, we don't get harmed and go home sicker than when we got to work. And so I just did um, two different kinds of surveys and in-depth interviews with cannabis workers to understand health and safety, and economic issues and their views about labor unions. And so it's real simple. They're not getting paid fairly. They're not earning their fair share and that they want a change. So in terms of health, the key issue specific to cannabis is that individuals who cultivate and are close to the, the, to the leaf itself, they suffer from uh, powdery mildew or exposure to mold. And those things tend to have respiratory issues and uh, tend to harm workers. And so that work is ongoing and got lots of videos about individuals in the, in the cultivation facilities. But I was also interested and continue to work 
on uh, corporate social responsibility schemes and how cannabis companies on one side of the mouth say that they're good corporate citizens. You know, they donate money to battered women's shelters. They have signs on the freeway that they clean up things and they, you know, build uh, cool things and do gardening or whatever. But what they say they do is different than what they actually do. And so if you look within the workplace, uh, workers recognize that the companies may have this um, image outside, you know, that they project, but they certainly have internal problems where they don't treat their workers fairly or they're not ensuring that the workplace is safe and free from hazards. And so this area falls under sort of corporate accountability and how to ensure that companies are um, are called out for their harmful labor practices and looking at corporate responsibility schemes or community engagement programs or even social equity uh, programs as sort of ways to distract public attention from the bad practices of cannabis. And, you know, I love cannabis. I, I like it as a research area, as a, a platform for social justice, but there's a lot of work that's needed. And I'm not hopeful because the way the momentum is going. There's a consolidation with big companies swallowing up licenses and swallowing up small companies. And so you're seeing the Walmartization of cannabis, which we all know when you look at other sectors is not good for anyone except the company owners themselves. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of like greenwashing too. a lot of that kind of like, Oh, we clean up the highways and we donate money. Like, um, do you have any thoughts about maybe what folks that are cannabis consumers can do to advocate for cannabis workers? Or That's a great question. I get asked that a lot because it's so important. You know, right. you want to um, express your power with your dollars. And I, I think just simply asking people like, hey, are you guys unionized? You know, we did find this year um, the first union appeared for cannabis workers in Colorado. We're actually late to the game. Um, there's been at least 16 other states that have uh, legally recognized cannabis unions, but yeah. only in Colorado in 2021, we got our first um, collective bargaining agreement in Colorado. So that's a good thing. And so I think um, recognizing that that should be normalized, you know, and unions are just one vehicle, you know, collective bargaining contracts, um, you know, which are legally binding. These are just one vehicle available to workers to try to get better dignity and better salaries in the workplace. Uh, the other thing is to ask um, individuals, how are the um, working conditions? You know, are, are the uh, conditions fair? Are they safe? Um, and one that always gets me is super interesting, asking people, you know, bud tenders, can they verify that the weed that you're buying is free from powdery mildew or free from pesticides. So these are a couple questions. Um, and then of course, you know, maybe shopping at union uh, friendly uh, places is good to um, consider. And I could send you the link for, um, for these places. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember the name of the two facilities, but I'm happy to give them to you to put in the text description of your podcast. Yeah, that would be great. And if we could share that information too, um, I'm sure, you know, if any folks are listening in Colorado or or other states with legal weed. I'm sure they'd be interested in learning more. So um, I want to pass it to Joy. Just Joy, do you yeah. have any questions? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I've really been enjoying um, listening. <laughs> it's, um, it's, but the, yeah, and, and the, the, I think, question that always comes up for me when it, 
when the issue of cannabis and the industry and and also specifically labor comes up is you know can you speak on some of the the racial disparities even within the class war that is um the cannabis industry and i think you know the greenwashing that sarah brought up is you know we see it in the form of of all kinds of um corporate you know sloganing that that doesn't actually have any depth but i'm wondering if if your your experience your research and um has has turned up examples of of the ways that's having a uh, <laughs> disproportionate impact on on people who are not white. Yeah, again, I love these questions. So when I first started my cannabis research, I was actually interested just to look at Latino workers. You know, my father's from Ecuador, my mom's Caucasian from Chicago. So I've always had alliances with, you know, Latinos trying to understand the health inequities that, you know, this population faces. And so when I went into the sector, it was really, really difficult in 2014 and 15 to find any workers, you know, any people of color. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think it's because the way the um, system is set up earlier when 2014 started and it was legalized, you had to get, um, and you still do, you have to get a, a card to work in uh, the cannabis sector here in Colorado. The Marijuana Enforcement Division is the entity that issues these cards. But the way the, the requirements were, it pretty much nicks people who had, you know, a record or had uh, some spent time in jail. And so most of the workers, or at least the workers I interfaced with early on, were just predominantly Caucasian. So the few Latinos and people of color that I did talk with, they were really open and willing to share some of the problems. And I think one of these stories, which is emblematic of the problems at the shop floor level was that, you know, during the 2015-16 period, you had a lot of people coming from outside of Colorado. Um, the term is called a trimigrant. So these individuals that would come from mm -hmm. the South, for example, come to Denver, come to Colorado, and then work trimming weed. You know, that's like the entry-level job. And so one guy was telling me, um, you know, you'd be around a trimming table, you know, the only person of color and you get all these racists from inside Colorado and from like Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. And, and this guy talked about how it would be cool to create a graphic of all the cultivation places in Denver Metro, like make a graphic, like a cartoon and put a, a clan flag above every dispensary or every cultivation facility to acknowledge that there's this white power and white supremacy that exists that's not talked about but you feel it as a person of color at the trimming table the way people talk to people of color the outright outright racist statements so that's one level where i think there's at the shop floor people are trying to grapple with this stuff and of course things have changed you know with um the black lives matter i'd like to think there's some consciousness raising in the workplace but at, as you go to the higher level Definitely the licensing system for Colorado and other states, it was pretty much um, developed mostly by white people and it favors white people. So if you look at the owners throughout Colorado and the country, there's very, very few owners who are people of color. And that's a, a, obviously a history related to um, lack of access to capital or you know the extensive prison industrial complex where 
You, you have individuals, people of color who spend time in prison. And so that's affected their ability to get licenses. And then, of course, if you go to the boardroom, if you get the big multi-state operators, those are named for big cannabis companies that have multiple licenses in multiple states. You know, if you look at the board of directors, they're all pretty much all white. And um, you're finding this whole movement to push for social equity is really good. I think they're having nominal efforts, but I think you can't separate, you know, this uh, search and movement for racial justice from also uh, wage justice and fairness in the workplace because these problems go uh, hand in hand. So I think there's a lot of work to do. Uh, I do find it suspicious where you get some individuals that are just propped up as, you know, people of color in high positions to say, look, we've done our job and we're done and we wash our hands of it. Um, but I think this is an ongoing uh, process. And I think the only way forward is to develop uh, critique and an informed analysis of, you know, white supremacy, white privilege and how it relates to cannabis, not only in production, but also along consumption lines. Yeah, it's one of those things that, I mean, I definitely went through, you know, a young idealist hippie phase where I was like, if everyone just ate psychedelics, then the world would be a better place. You know, <laughs> like if everyone just ate <laughs> every day and the world would be a better place. So it's like, you can't just like throw drugs at the system and expect it to change. <laughs> you have to actually interrogate <laughs> the structures and do the work and do the work of you know, consciousness, because while we're still seeing each other as separate beings, we're not, you know, invested in the process of collective liberation. But although, although one thing to add to what you're saying, and, and I'm, I'm kind of giddy about this stuff, because in the spring, in the anthropology department at CU Denver, I'm going to teach a course called psychedelic anthropology. Ooh. And, and, and so and this is not to belittle the racial justice kinds of issues because they're even necessary and important to talk about when you look at psychedelics, which is an emerging blossoming area. But, but what I'm finding is all of these things, whether it's cannabis or drug users, you know, people use heroin and fentanyl. Um, it, it's amazing how people really want to wean themselves from synthetic drugs. And so we have a lot of these natural types of concoctions, whether psilocybin or other substances that allow people to cope and make meaning in their life and build community. And, and so I think the psychedelic studies is, is just blossoming. I'm looking forward to teach it, but also think through how to ensure that there's economic fairness and you know racial equity, and then how to scale it up and make people come out of the woodwork and speak openly about their whether it's microdosing or growing their own mushrooms or or whatever substance they want to use to you know cope, but also to achieve wellness in their own lives. Um, I was wondering if we could talk about the kind of unspoken connections that are between uh, tobacco and cannabis, as far as one um, one being completely socially acceptable and the other not, and the ways that maybe that could um, be be keeping us from being able to to effectively talk about cannabis as, as an industry that needs to be organized and needs to be um, you know needs to have some some real oversight just as the tobacco industry 
Yeah, thanks for that question. So, um, gosh, I'm not sure if I totally understand it. I'm going to try to rephrase it. So we have tobacco and cigarettes for for over 100 years, uh, legal and available and normalized, with all of the baggage associated with it, including the excessive lobbying power of the um, tobacco industry, their ability to work with scientists and publish using industry money um, material that says smoking is not harmful, uh, but then also to um, basically sell a product that people recognize if you use as intended, it can kill you. And and so, mm-hmm. and the current movement by a Philip Morris funded organization called Smoke Free World to the, the, the tobacco industry is rallying around a point that they want to end the life of cigarettes as we know it, like have no more cigarettes, like by the year 2030. And and so some are looking at this as like another marketing ploy, but they're also shifting and trying to get people to go into um, e-cigarettes, which research does show there's still harmful effects. So that's one side of the coin. Then the other is cannabis, which has been around for a long time, and it's uh, highly stigmatized. Unfortunately, still a Schedule One drug, meaning the F, uh, the federal government is basically not. It's choosing not to implement the law. So, in Colorado and the thirty nine other states or so that have legalized medical or recreational marijuana and cannabis, they're they're doing this. Um, I think keeping their fingers crossed that it's going to become legal. So. I think what I would like to comment on is how the public health people are um, struggling to figure out how to effectively address the health effects of cannabis. We all agree children, you know, people under 18 shouldn't have access to cannabis, of course, unless you have a medical card and you have some serious um, ailment where it's proven that cannabis or CBD can be useful uh, so public health people are trying to figure out how to ensure, and this is something I totally believe in, that representatives of the cannabis companies should not be at the decision-making table when you're talking about health policies. Because similar to tobacco, the um, industry sat at most of the decision-making tables and um, influenced legislation. And then over time, we're asked to leave. But we're starting out in cannabis especially in Colorado in 2012, the cannabis representatives actually wrote a lot of the legislation because the health people didn't know much about cannabis. And so we're at a situation now where how do we force the exit of cannabis representatives from the decision-making and policy-making table because what they're doing is designing policies that are not pro-health and or they're favoring policies that are anti-worker. And so these are a couple of larger yeah. questions that are just yeah. ongoing. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of sad to see yeah. the same issues just reproduce themselves even in something that supposedly is supposed to be all nice like marijuana. <laughs> well, well, the solution actually, Sarah, the solution is grow your own. You know, that that's the, that's the best way, but, but the best advice people have given me to, to in a way just disconnect but then really know what's going into your cannabis 
Um, that doesn't solve the larger corporate power things, but that's one way people are kind of going into homesteading and, you know, growing their own stuff and, and, and enjoying the, the plant itself. Totally. So, yeah, I always have this concern that as it gets legal, they're going to try to take the personal cultivation away <laughs> to just as a profit-making scheme. But that's that's a whole other rabbit hole we don't need to go on down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was really interested in hearing about the more about the Getting High on Anthropology project, but maybe just to kind of situate that conversation. Because um, I feel like a lot of, like, maybe lay folks don't quite understand, you know, the value of anthropology as a discipline in bringing a lens to public policy. So maybe like kind of starting there with where you see the links are between anthropology and public policy. Okay. Yeah, sure. So yeah, anthropology, you know, it's the study of people, those connections that we have uh, with each other, the things that keep us fractured. And so there's four sub fields. There's archaeology, linguistics, biological anthropology and cultural anthropology. So I'm a cultural anthropologist. And so I look at cultural anthropology as a platform for social justice, you know, as a platform for policy change. And so typically the work I do is not necessarily just to describe and analyze a culture, but it's really how to learn from people and then use my position to create new cultures, cultures of equity, you know, racial justice, uh, fairness along class lines. And, and so anthropology has a history of influencing policy. It's just we are still kind of like junior level people compared to like economists. You mm-hmm. know, economists have numbers and they have like hard science. And so they get most of the airtime. So in the public eye, you rarely see anthropologists at the table, you know, talking about the current events. And I think it's because of other people getting the um, time because they have this, you know, maybe hard science approach or anthropologists are still trying to figure out, you know, we have this problem that culture is so nebulous, you know, when you wrap around uh, and put parameters around the culture of cannabis or culture of, of tobacco or drug users, you know, sometimes it's hard for us to stand on solid ground and make, make comments and statements because culture is constantly shifting. And, And so in some ways we do affect policy change, uh, whether it's immigrant rights or uh, drug users, uh, health justice issues. Um, but at the same time, we're still trying to figure out how to get more into the public eye. And this is where getting high on anthropology comes in. So the show first started out at Denver Open Media in, here in Denver, but that um, program or that uh, institution kind of got swallowed up in some problems and lost money from the city. And, and so the show still exists on that uh, website, but I'm also a producer at Denver Community Media, which is like the competitor that took over. And so the show is basically a community level show and it's designed to give people free, no cost uh, media and information that looks at the unusual suspects. You know, the people in the cannabis sector who are doing cool things that maybe don't get the airtime. And (laughs) I was just disappointed that for people who wanted good information, I don't think they have to pay 500 bucks to go to a conference to get the stuff. And so up to today, I think I have at least 80 episodes published and I have another 20 already edited. I just got to upload them. But the goal is just to celebrate cannabis in all of its intricacies, whether labor, health, uh, policy, legal issues, gender issues, um, and then just have fun with it um, and get people to um, share stories 
and then um, get people to feel comfortable and maybe create their own shows or create their own podcasts uh, because it's um, a pretty fun thing to do. It is for sure. So. Yeah, I agree. And I, I know we're getting short on time, but I would let you did mention just now gender issues in the cannabis industry. And, um, and I, I don't think that's actually talked about that much. I wonder if you could expound on what some of those issues are and how, what kind of stories you're hearing. Sure. Yeah. Again, I'd like to think there's been some level of enlightenment because of, you know, the Me Too movement. But early on, you know, this sector uh, was famous for like, like, you know, boobs and bongs, you know, using uh, women's bodies to sell the product or just as, um, you know, poster people to get notoriety out there and get brands out there. But there's been a couple really crass examples of, of some of the problems um, along gender lines in this industry. I think the most famous one is there was an industry party in Vegas, I believe. This is a couple of years ago. And they had a naked woman at the party laying down and they put sushi on her. So the woman was basically a tray for the sushi, but also there visibly for men's enjoyment, uh, people's enjoyment. So, so that was, I think, possibly a tipping point where women and others came out of the woodwork and said, this is just wrong. There needs to be a shift. And, and so at every level of the cannabis sector, whether the cultivation facility that's mostly men uh, and typically very few women, and that might be changing. And then at the bud tender level, which is the consumer front end, you have mostly women, you know, women, some owners typically try to hire pretty women. They tend to sell and upsell uh, products to, to men. Um, and then once you get to the CEO level or the managerial level, there's, you know, the, the very few women at these higher levels. So some things are changing, uh, but I, I think from what I'm learning, um, there's just so many inadequate areas that it's going to take a, a major cultural shift to to see it change, I think, to the way that we want it, where there's like, you know, full equality or, you know, seeing a woman not getting passed up because of her gender or seeing a woman get penalized, you know, because she, have, she has children. Um, and so I think there's a lot of issues that, as you kind of said, go un, undiscussed or there's a lack of discussion uh, but but there are some groups that are trying to address that. Um, there's a really cool documentary film, uh, I think, called Women and Weed or something that's really effective to point out some of the leaders, uh, you know, the female leaders that are really charting a new path. Uh, but I think, again, until we critically engage in, like, issues of, you know, hegemonic masculinity or toxic masculinity, white privilege, something that's been called the bro culture, um, you know, I think a woman called them lumber sexuals, you know, guys who wear flannels and come off as real cool, but are really like, you know, pigs in terms of how they treat women, you know, so there's just a lot of work. And unfortunately, the cannabis sector, I think, similar to all other industries, uh, is, is really trying to figure out how to make the workplace safe for women, but also uh, provide uh, opportunities and get rid of the glass ceiling. And a book that's out there that's pretty useful is called The Grass Ceiling, uh, trying to showcase women who've made it successfully up the ladder in the cannabis sector. Oh, that's awesome. We'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes so folks can find all those resources. Mm -hmm. This is kind of um, 
one thing I've always interested in asking, you know, whether it's Ingrid, Carol, Tracy, and some other um, drug policy reform folks have had on the podcast, there's so much competing for people's attention right now, whether it's climate change, um, just all of the everything of the apocalypse. Um, why is it still an important conversation to be happening, having about drug policy reform and some of these issues? Yeah, thank you. That, that's such a great question. I mean, so many families, so many individuals, so many community members are affected by the consequences of the war on drugs. You know, social services ripped apart, uh, prejudice against harm reduction, people who want to ensure people have safe access to, to clean needles, to um, medicine to reverse overdoses. And so I, I think there's just this gigantic shift going on where people are, are seeing that it should be normal to, to uh, consume drugs safely and that um, we don't need this paternalistic set of practices that uh, think we can't take care of ourselves in a healthy way when we choose to use um, substances. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, the drug reform, you know, it's extremely important. And I think it's topical um, because of the broad, wide-scale support for cannabis legalization, but also this growing movement for psilocybin and just a recognition that the existing, you know, um, system that is anchored into the war on drugs and all the re residual impact of the war on drugs is just totally flawed. Um, I think we have some major, major resistance among uh, pharmaceutical companies and I think among law enforcement. And so I think the trick is and the challenge is how to work with law enforcement and maybe how to think through to work collaboratively with pharmaceutical companies to, so that they don't be obstructionists. Um, but these companies and these entities have so much power, and I think there's still a lot of work to uh, destigmatize uh, drug use and, and make sure that uh, drug reform happens, but also that when it does happen, that it doesn't become um, uh, morphed into this entity that we lose control of it and that it ends up uh, um, being something that we regret in terms of overregulation or if government does get their hand on it or big companies get their hand on it, uh, making it uh, less healthy for us because they're more interested in the dollar than um, a clean product. Yeah, totally. Um, Joy, do you have anything to add? I feel like we've, we've covered so much ground and, um, and I, I just really appreciate the way that you have, you know, made connections between all of, you know, these issues that a lot of a lot of people think of as not necessarily connected, you know, gender uh, gender issues, labor issues, um, drug stigmatization, um, white supremacy, like people who spend time doing research and in academia and act and um, actively organizing are aware of all these connections, but not necessarily everyone. So thank you for um, you know elucidating them. And, uh, and I guess, yeah, just what do you, what do you think, what would you see like an ideal, uh, an ideal cannabis industry would look like? Just as for example, since we're talking about such a broad spectrum and a, a broad swath of, you know, <laughs> corporate exploitation that's, that's happening here. What, what would you, what would you say a, an ideal cannabis world would look like? 
Yeah, thanks, Joy, and thanks for listening. Um, gosh, there's like the dream world, which is like this gigantic cooperative kind of movement. So, so there are cases um, where in Chicago, for example, there are worker cooperatives. So I think that's one model that might be gaining traction. Um, <clears throat> but I think the, the least we can do uh, because of just the overwhelming power of the cannabis dollars and the companies themselves is, is really just promoting unionization. Again, unionization is not for everyone, but at the same time, it's one of the only vehicles that is providing a safety net and a platform for workers to assert their rights and to ensure that they get a better salary uh, for the work that they're doing and health, healthy conditions of work and reduce you know, safety hazards in the workplace. And so I, I think just uh, more details and information about the role of unions and how they are providing better workplaces, better salaries in the cannabis sector, that I think for me is the best thing we could do in 2021. And then hopefully by next year, uh, increase the number of collective bargaining agreements and unionized cannabis workshops throughout the United States. Awesome. Awesome. Thank this, you. This kind of dovetails into my, um, which I keep trying to ask guests and then forgetting. So <laughs> at the end, <laughs> obviously this is a very intense time for humanity. Um, what is giving you hope right now? What gives me hope, I think, is just, you know, looking at my children, looking at my family, looking at my friends, and looking at all the daily victories that we're all having uh, to address the things and challenges in front of us. So whether it's health issues, economic issues, or just people being resourceful during the apocalypse, during the pandemic, and finding creative ways of spending our time. And, and so for me, just being present uh, with people, the fact that I'm healthy, you know, financially secure, and, and having a cool set of friends, a really good job that I'm happy with, and, and just trying to, um, you know, through osmosis, get get together with other people and just be able to celebrate life in our time together. And so these are kind of things that keep me going. Um, as you know, it is really hard to find hope given whatever news thing you read or whatever new problem that exists. But I've had this problem of being eternally optimistic my whole life, always looking at um, the positive in things and just charging ahead and uh, just keeping my fingers crossed that what I'm doing is right and that people come out of the woodwork uh, to support. And then, of course, I extend myself when I can to, to support people. So that's kind of like how I would answer that question. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, we can all use a little more optimism. <laughs> I tend to swing wild <laughs> depending on the day. I'm like, oh, things are getting going to get better. We're going to get through this. And some days I'm like, no, I'm not. So, but conversations like this <laughs> always bring me a lot of hope. Um, Definitely. Well, mm -hmm. thank you, Marty. Did you have anything to add, Joy? I didn't want to like end before. No. Yeah. You're you're so considerate, Sarah. I appreciate the shit out of you. <laughs> um, I <laughs> I really just no. This, this has been um, fantastic and educational and enlightening for me. Um, and yeah, I I hope that you know the people who are out there willing to listen will hear you and uh, we'll keep doing our part to spread the word, but. 
is there anything else you wanted to add before we, um, you know, send you, send you out to continue enjoying your apocalypse? I think I covered it all and I really appreciate uh, the line of questioning. I really appreciate the energy you guys bring to this medium and I'm looking forward to uh, listening to all the existing podcasts and the upcoming ones. So I appreciate the work that you guys do. Thank you. Um, where can people Thank find you? Uh, people can find about me by looking at my website for getting high on anthropology. The website is F like Frank S like Sam, the word and, and then the word green. So fsandgreen.org or type in naloxonechampions.org and you'll get to um, see more details about that specific project in my background. Great. We will link to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Marnie, um, for your time. And I'm glad we were able to make this work despite all of the tech challenges, mm -hmm. the, uh, the mercury retrograding of it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for your patience. No, I really enjoyed talking with you guys and you guys have a great day. And again, thanks for the work you guys do. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary times with Joy Damiani and Sarah Baranowskis, located on the internet at whatthefolkpod.com and on all your streaming platforms. And if you're enjoying us, we hope you'll take a moment and subscribe and leave us some stars and leave us some love. Now back to the conversation. So much has happened in the world, Sarah, in the last two weeks. <laughs> we can probably say that every two weeks. So. I feel like we could say that every day and still mean two weeks because that's how long every day takes now. Yeah, and as we've said before, what is time anyway? <laughs> exactly. It's what we decide it is. It's contextual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think we were both 0% surprised at any of the revelations from the Facebook whistleblower, but we yeah. tend to be 0% surprised about a lot of things that surprise people. So 0% surprised there. Yeah, I feel like, and it's not even because like we're, I don't know. I don't feel like I know anything more than anyone else. I think I've just been like fucked over by so many different figures at this point in my life that I'm never surprised when a person with power is doing something evil with it ever. Yeah, I think maybe sort of similar, maybe if not directly fucked over as much just from you know, studying the history of American imperialism for so long, like, not that much surprises me. And I'm also deeply cynical. So I guess that's, uh, that can be its own protective mechanism. <laughs> so yeah, well, it helps you be cynical, you know, when you find things out that, you know, confirm your suspicions, you know, namely that, you know, these social media um, platforms that we use are using algorithms that intentionally prioritize profit, even when it means giving people um, information that's going to like actually tear the social fabric apart um, and create divisions that wouldn't necessarily exist. 
Um, when you find out that's happening intentionally, like you can only have so many reactions to it and still like continue functioning as a, as like a person in that society. Like you could just like, like, a <laughs> and like your whole brain explodes. It's like everywhere. And you're like, what even do with anything? How ever? Or you're just like, cool. Most people in power are evil. Check. Next. Yeah. Or even if they're not, you know, evil in the sense that they're aligned with some truly anti-human agenda, they've certainly lost all perspective of what it means to be a human being and have human-centered policies. At least most of them. There are exceptions, hopefully. But yeah, it was kind of funny, too, a lot of the, like, again, as we've said before, the memory holding that people have is just never ceases to amaze me. Like, 2014, there was this study that, or, like, this revelation about this study Facebook have done where they manipulated the content of people's feeds to see if they could basically manipulate people's emotions, and they found out, oh, my gosh, they could. And that, hey, guess what? You know what spreads more on Facebook and gets more attention? Anger. So this study is now, what, seven years old that it came out that Facebook did this? So why is anyone surprised that they're still using that model? (laughs) It's completely in keeping also with, you know... I mean, every corporate model is like, how do we exploit people and get money out of them? It's not new. And, um, you know, when we keep that context, when we keep that, you know, historical framework and we think critically, which is a thing that um, that most of us don't learn how to do these days, you know, ask, where is this information coming from? Who is paying for it? Um, why am I seeing it? How am I seeing it? Where is it? How did this get to me? You know, like all these little questions that are big, big questions. Um, you know, there are some excellent journalists out there. We, we've, you know, talked about, we've, you know, um, you know, I lived in the Bay Area for a while and there was KPFA community radio. They always had really, um, really thoughtful, critical pieces on there. Um, Actually, I know uh, my friend Mickey Huff is, is doing um, a series on critical thinking. So, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about, um, you know, just how we how we sort through all this information now that it's very, very, very clear that we're being fed what is going to make us react, not what is going to make us healthy. Yeah. And in some ways, that's nothing new because that's been the media model. You know, and even divisiveness, that's kind of where Fox News figured out their bread and butter. And then the other like networks quickly followed suit, whether it's MSNBC, you know, with nonstop coverage of every single fart that Trump made just to get, you know, the blue team riled up in the same way that Fox News, not to make moral equivalencies necessarily, but like the strategies are very similar. So like in some ways, Facebook is... And social media is just following the path laid by the mainstream media to monetize fear, to get people's attention, 
to get people worked up so they'll keep tuning in, so they'll keep buying shit, and then those companies will keep making money. It's the same shit. Right. It fuels um, domestic and foreign policy by getting people to all think as closely to a way that's like friendly power as possible. And usually that, you know, that divide and conquer method is ages old. You know, it's, it's definitely not new. It's just getting very, very sophisticated. And I think what they're not saying is that they have created a monster that's, that's not entirely in their control. I think that's part of why it's not transparent. Um, because it's it really is um, you know artificial intelligence is still intelligent and every or that I have read about you know the evolution of AI says that like at a certain point it will evolve on its own and it's already been doing that so I think the bigger concern over than like our you know sort of terrestrial media you know our human radio TV is like AI controlled social media that is like that is doing what we already have happening but like to the nth degree to where we don't even it's already happening I'll be I'll admit it like there are people that I don't look at the same way anymore because I just I question their sanity in certain ways I don't trust them like to see the world around me in the same way yeah, and I really, oh man, it'd be good to have someone on who really knows about algorithms and how they work, and actually, side note, I might be able to do that, note to self, but um, yeah, with a lot of these algorithms, um, oh, Norm MacDonald, note to self, um, a lot of these, know, yay. it's like the algorithms, you know, assuming that they're not sentient and don't have a strategy, are sort of just... Again, this maybe is not exact even how algorithms work. So if someone is listening to this and this is totally wrong, I'm sorry. They're just kind of feeding back on the feedback loop that they're supposed to and based on the data that they're taking in, basically. So if they're successfully showing people content and that's working, they're going to keep doing that. But it's not like they're sitting there right. with a strategy necessarily. I mean... Who knows? I mean, I don't think we're at right. sentience point yet with AI, but maybe maybe we are and we don't know. So, right? Like, how are when are how are we going to know when we've reached sentience point? That's a whole a whole conversation. But yeah, no, I think at this point it's like we're kind of rolling downhill backwards. Um, is how it feels. Like we can kind of see where we're going, but but we don't entirely have the power to stop. Um, I don't think we do have the power to stop at this point. We just can figure out, like, how we're going to keep ourselves from dying. And, you know, I yeah, so we, when we look at this and we try to contextualize it, you know, um, as we've, we, I try to pay attention to all the things I've been wrong about in the past and had to, to learn about. And one of the things I learned about, um, almost as it was happening, was the Arab Spring and the way that social media played a huge role in that, which was about 10 years ago. So if we're looking at history as, like, repetitive or rhymey, as um, Matt Heitman said, um, or, you know, if we're looking at history even as, like, um, being a pattern, you know, 
we are we're seeing after after the Arab Spring, you know, we saw social media platforms um, became aware of their own power. I think a little more and the power of people um, to wield that power and. He didn't see much of it in the news, if anything, other than through independent um, sources. But, you know, what were the crackdowns? What were the algorithm tweaks made after the effectiveness of Twitter and Facebook in the Arab Spring at mobilizing people against oppressive regimes? And how are we see- seeing the, the fallout? That, how are we seeing that play out now, 10 years later? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I also think of, like, information sharing during Occupy and some of these other things, like, counter-narratives are out there, but they're still very, they manage to be very suppressed in spite of, like, a supposedly a field where everyone can share everything on social media, you generally see the same, you know, it's like, anti-vaxxers versus you know, vaccine, yay science people. You know, you don't see a lot of room for nuance. You don't see a lot of, like, interesting maybe third or fourth or fifth or sixth perspectives on an issue. It's always generally the same two perspectives. So certainly something's up there. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing how people don't kind of... Not that I am, like, like you were saying, I don't feel like I know everything or really anything at all but I still sometimes just look at social media and I'm like how do people not see that they're being herded a little bit at least like I was saying before we started recording you know like I basically stopped using a lot of social media on the reg except to get like concert tickets for things um because this band I like is stupid hard to get tickets for sometimes um (laughs) Stupid fish. But um, (laughs) if fish is listening, I love you and give me all the tickets. Um, And come on the podcast. Um, But I still tune into the news. Like, The Intercept, Truth Out. I do, like, I'll do, like, a Google News search and even read through some more mainstream things. I get the headlines from, like, some of the more, like, mainstream papers in my inbox I turn into Breaking Point. Shout out to Breaking Points. They're awesome. Um, you know, like, so I tune into, like, a lot of independent media and enough stuff that makes me outraged on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, maybe not daily. I maybe, you know, anyway. The point is, but I don't feel like I have this constant state of, like, anger and upset. And, like, when I was on social media all the time, I felt like that constantly. Mm. And I don't know... I don't really have an answer to that. It's just an observation I notice. It's like I'm consuming information about the same issues, but there's something about the way I'm consuming it that, or maybe I've just like deadened myself inside how shitty the world is that, you know. I have a theory. Sorry. Yeah. What is your theory? No, you're fine. It's okay. You're getting your information, even if it's, actual news articles from social media you're getting it with editorial and emotion like you're getting it with the perspective of the person sharing it and news is at least it's ostensibly like it's supposed to be to be printed as objective um and 
and you know, you know, not, then it's like, this is an opinion piece. And there that's stated, right? Like, if you're about to be given the opinion, but like, on social media, we're like inundated with not only information, but the emotional response to that information um, of not just random people, but like the people we know. Sometimes people who we didn't know thought that way. And they don't think there's anything wrong with the way they think. And all of a sudden you're confronted with it and you're just like, horrified like yeah like I make I make scared face sometimes if I scroll too long and then even if I look away I know those people are there and I knew they were there before I guess but I I also kind of I mean I was also in the military before Facebook and MySpace really became a thing and I was always inundated with people's opinions there too so I don't know maybe it's just because it's constant and yeah, no, that's actually a good theory, because even if, like, you know, I'm from a critical theory school where there's no such thing as objectivity, but, like, you kind of are getting it in one specific voice, and you kind of know the context of, like, the news you're getting. I mean, hopefully, <laughs> obviously not everyone does. Like, I don't need to hear people's opinions on how I should feel about the Stephen Donziger case. Like, I am infuriated and sick to my stomach about it just reading the story, um, I don't need to add this extra layer to it. So there may be something to that idea that adding all that extra white noise around the issue, even if the way you're getting fed the issue from one source might come with its own kind of white noise, it just generally just, I don't know, just creates this like anxiety and confusion and sense of like hopelessness, which is why it's so great to talk to people like Marty who are doing work to center people's voices in a really humanizing way and um, really kind of encourage critical thinking through sort of, you know, again, kind of centering people's voices and making them sort of the creators of their own media, you know, through his digital storytelling project and, you know, using that to shine light on, like, whether it's the cannabis industry or the need for Narcan. Um, So it does give me hope that there are people doing interventions in the machine by sort of taking those tools of media and kind of making them human again, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Totally. Yeah, it's like reclaiming the, um, it's reclaiming narrative, you know, and uh, which is huge because it really is the antithesis to what we see with social media, like actual social connection through authentic storytelling of not like people telling you about the news, people telling you about themselves. Like I, there are people in this life who I've connected with deeply and entirely. And once we've become social media connected, I have found so many things I could not handle about them. And I've not been able to stay connected because I'm like, I know too much now. And, uh, um, you know, whereas if my interaction with that person had been, like, them telling me, like, actual, like, earnest, you know, stories of their own personal experiences, like, I would have found something to connect with there. Because, like, we are all inherently connected, you know. I think that's another thing that, like, cannabis and psychedelics help us come to if we use the right quality of them (laughs) yeah and use them with intention yeah I mean I think social media really takes away human empathy 
Um, I haven't listened to all of mm-hmm. Francis Hagen's testimony or read all of it or I'm, I'm, I'm not informed on enough to know. Did I mispronounce, did I mispronounce her name? Sorry. Shitballs. See, I just read articles. I don't listen to them. God, I'm the worst with words for someone who's like intelligent. It is a librarian. I literally cannot pronounce words. It's insane. Words is hard. Words is hard. Be, it's, it's, it's cool. I fuck up all the time. Oh, man. man words, words is hard. That should be the tagline for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that is, maybe that's from Real Talk, Raw Tunes, and Revelationary Times, because words is hard. <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, Frankie no. H. Frankie H., maybe she talked about this, um, but maybe she didn't. Um, but yeah, I feel like social media really takes away a lot of empathy and it destroys real life relationships. Like, even if it's just in a minor way that like, and I've certainly done the same thing where I'm like, seen even one comment that someone I knew in real life posted and I was like, ooh, you know, that changed my opinion of them slightly. Whereas like, if I had an actual conversation with them, even if it was about the same issue, I maybe wouldn't have felt that way. So Mm -hmm. that might be the most dangerous thing. And if that is falling by the wayside in all these conversations, we're really missing the boat because with the level of crises and challenges, we're faced challenge crises and challenges, crises and challenges. <laughs> words is hard. <laughs> words, words is always hard. Words is challenges. Right <laughs> 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 oh man, it is almost. 1030. One or both of us has all we can handle for a Tuesday or whatever day it is. Today is Tuesday. I guess we might get this out on Wednesday. So yeah, this day has been a, a bunch of day. <laughs> what the fuck Wednesdays may be extending into Thursday is just showing our commitment to breaking down linear time. So <laughs> yeah. What the fuck do we care if we get it out on a Wednesday or Thursday? Exactly. What the fuck does it matter? Um, it doesn't, but like Marty's work is so powerful because it is bringing back empathy mm-hmm. and showing the power of storytelling. Exactly. And that's something that, I don't know, maybe that's the most rebellious thing you can do right now is try to have empathy for other people. Cause there just is this really inhuman element to social media sometimes that to me is the most disturbing thing about it. And maybe why you know, one of the reasons why I just, like, feel like I haven't had the psychological energy to deal with it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a, it has, it's been a majorly dehumanizing force and a de-empathizing force. I, re- I as you were saying that, I was remembering how back in, back in the early days of internet, <laughs> I had an online diary. I was too hoity-toity to call a blog. Live journal. <laughs> no, it was. It was. I was too cool even for live journal. It was. It was on um, a platform that is. I'm pretty sure gone now. Uh, shout out to Diaryland, and and I had a solid. I had a solid community. Uh, there because when I started my my online diary I was deployed and I was one of very few um soldiers active duty soldiers with 
a live journal or a blog. There were so few of us that I kind of found them all at that point and um, the rest of us. And because there wasn't social media, we would just write our own shit, like just write about our lives, right? Like just blog and you would have to be compelling, like you'd have to be interesting enough to keep people coming back. And if you were interesting and anything and, you know, people kept coming back, you would build your little community around your little world and you would go visit other people's worlds and interact with them in the other parts of internet land. And now, then like social media was like, just come to this part of internet land and we'll tell you who you want to see. And all of a sudden, like, not only does it not matter what you write, it could, you could be like, I remember one of my first Facebook statuses was like, is randomly gassy or like, or something, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Like the same number of people will see us if you, you know, anyway, it was a whole other world once you no longer really had to like be compelling in your storytelling to get people to come around and pay attention to you. Mm, that's that's Be really, your internet community. That is such an interesting point, yeah. And again, kind of ties back to what Marty's doing because he is showing how, you know, anyone can bring something compelling to the table, you know, whether it's one of his students or someone who's survived an overdose, um or any of the other myriad of stories out there that could be captured by, you know, the, the groundwork that he's laying for this format, the digital storytelling is, you know, him and the other folks in academia who are trying to break some of those models down about what is considered scholarly work. Um, I don't know. There's just a lot of potential there maybe to bring that, com- that role of compelling narrative and telling our own stories back. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by helping like learn how to use all these tools that are available and how to like understand you know human psychology enough to create a compelling piece of storytelling that that actually is effectively connecting with them um because sometimes you know, like I don't know how to connect I don't know how to tell a story in a way that's going to connect anybody I have to like workshop it for years and then I'm like how about this (laughs) you know so so thanks a lot to Marty for you know helping get that crucial um work done you know to kind of get us back back to where we we want belonged (laughs) as as it were in in our culture where we used to just be communities that told stories to each other indeed Maybe it's all coming full circle back to that. What the Folk is co-hosted and co-produced by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Our theme music is a song called In a Major Key by Joy Damiani. If you want to find us on the internets, we're at whatthefolkpod.com. You can email us at whatthefolkpod at gmail.com. And uh, you can reach out to us any other way. We're on Instagram at whatthefolkpod or on Twitter sometimes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being your fantastic selves. We need more of you in the world. See you next time.